None above Him, none before Him, all of time in His hands. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in His name. Right? We must trust Him. As we come to a text like today's text, we must remember that the Lord is the one in whom we place our trust. As we work through Acts chapter 12 today, you'll notice even my outline will be a little different than what we normally do. I'm not going to give you the main theme at the beginning. You might be able to guess it as we work our way through. We're going to catch it at the end because it's at the end of our text that we see the big reason that this story is included in Scripture. It's revealed at the end of Herod's life. And you may have caught it when you read what happened to King Herod. But the story begins with him and it ends with him. And as we see what our theme is, then we'll go back and make some applications through the text. So, Let's watch the story unfold. I want you to imagine it with me and see how we learn about the early church, about King Herod, and about our God as this text unfolds. And this will help us as we face our own sort of soul-crushing moments of life. When we think we know what God's plan is and then something happens that just kind of knocks us on our backs and we wonder, what is going on here? This is what we experience with the early church in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Herod's purpose is clear. He stretches out his hand, and the imagery is that of using his power, his strength, what he has, King Herod and his resources, he's using his hand to harass the church. And in this evil intent, he has James killed with a sword. What was common in Roman times was a beheading with the sword. We don't know that that's exactly what happened here, but James is killed with a sword. This is the context that we enter this passage. Herod is acting out his violence on the church. Now, this is Herod Agrippa. We've encountered other Herods. There's been Herod the Great. It's mentioned in Scripture. Herod Agrippa I is Herod the Great's grandson. This Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, and he was on the throne for a short period of time. It ended early, as you read in our text. We learn that his death from the historian Josephus, his death happened in about AD 44, if those writings are accurate. And so that places us here in this text about oh, 10 years or a little more since the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church has been growing over those 10 years. Things have been going relatively well. Sure, there's been some challenges, there's been some setbacks, but this outweighs them all. James, one of the apostles, has been martyred. This begins the end of the era of the apostles, right? You remember, early on in the book of Acts, they worked to replace Judas, who had died, with Matthias, but James is not replaced, we have our 12 apostles, and as they perish in the work of building the church, it ends the era of the apostles. And so it begins. 
James and John, in fact, had come to Jesus, hadn't they? Asking to sit on his right and his left in the kingdom. And Jesus asked them, oh, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And remember in their pride, they said, oh yeah, we're able. But then Jesus says to them, well, actually you will drink the cup that I'm drinking. You will be baptized with the baptism that I will face, referring to his own impending death. And now indeed we see it unfold. James is martyred for the sake of the church, for the sake of God's glory. In this dark time, it gets even darker in verse 3 as Herod senses that this has pleased the Jews. We see the animosity between the church and the Jewish faith growing here. Christianity is not just some Jewish sect. There's division between them and they begin to hate the church. And so they're pleased that James has been killed. And Herod sees this as kind of a pat on the back. He wants to earn the favor of the Jewish people himself being part Jew. And so he's encouraged by this and wanting even more honor from the Jewish people. He seizes Peter and we read in verse 3 how Peter is seized and placed in prison during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Interesting, if we think back, you may remember what else has happened during Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a seven-day feast following the day of Passover, and sometimes the whole thing is summarized as Passover. That's exactly the time of year when the Lord Jesus died and when Pilate wanted to please the people. And now Herod, in the same time frame, is seeking to please the people. Certainly this is a dark time, and you can understand how the early church may be imagining, okay, James is gone, now Peter too. It's only a matter of time until Herod puts Peter to death. So verse 4, he arrested him, put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers. There are four soldiers in a squad, so a little bit of math, 16 soldiers guarding Peter. Herod is serious about putting Peter to death. 16 soldiers for one man. Herod has intentions there at the end of verse 4 to bring him before the people after Passover. Let the Jews get through their feast. Then Herod's going to make sure they see that he's the one who put Peter to death so he can receive more accolades and more honor from the Jewish people. The key to this first section is back in verse 1. Herod stretched out his hands to torture the church. He's serving himself instead of God. He's using his power for his good instead of aligning with God's purposes. And so he uses his power to deal what seems to be a death blow to the church. What we learn as we work through this story is that we're going to see this in life. Some use their power to resist God's church. Many around us will use their hands to push back against what God is doing, how God is working for His glory. We will face resistance. Wherever God is at work, there are those who use what little power they have to resist His work. But if we're transparent, we need to admit that any time we act selfishly, Like Herod, we resist the work 
of God. We, we see this opposition all around us, certainly uh, around the world. We're familiar with cultures and governments that seek to stomp out Christianity, to resist the growth of the church. We've even felt this at times here in the United States as there comes legislation that is set against the truth of God's Word and God's people. But not only do we see it in cultures and in governments, we see this in our lives. Sin, disease, and death are all reminders of mankind's opposition to God. Tracking all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the fall and the curse upon the world, every time we experience disease and death and sickness, we're reminded of mankind's opposition to God. It's the great curse of our present world. But again, we must be humble as we consider the fact that there's opposition to God out there, we must admit that there's opposition to God in here. We must confess that we too have been found using our power to resist God's work for His glory. Anytime I act in selfishness rather than for God's glory, I oppose the very work of God. We know in Scripture, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so when we sin, we destroy. Sin is destruction. It may be that today you're reeling from the destruction in your life brought about by sin. Yours or someone else's or just the fallenness of our world. There's any number of examples of what this can look like. The death of a loved one. A grim health diagnosis, crushed dreams, a broken family, financial ruin, destroyed relationships. All of these are evidence of the brokenness of our world, the effects of my sin and yours. In the text, this resistance and destruction has to do specifically with the church, and we've experienced that too. Maybe you've been hurt by your fellow believers in the church. Maybe a pastor or church leader you trusted deceived you about their sin. Maybe the person who discipled you or mentored you has passed away or fallen away from the Lord. These things happen. There's often opposition to what God is doing, and it begs the question then, how do we respond when we are left broken and confused by these blows from those who oppose God, the destruction caused by sin? Notice how the early church responds in verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant Prayer was offered to God for him by the church. They bowed before the sovereign God. Though Peter was bound, their prayers were not bound before the Lord. As they offered to God their praise, we could assume, their requests, certainly. We don't know exactly what they prayed or what they said, but we're told they did pray for Peter. They bow before the one they know truly has the power, and they ask God for help. They pray to Him. 
They're praying fervently or constantly. And the timing here is key as we watch the events unfold in the next verses. In verse 6, we read that Herod was about to bring him out, meaning that the feast of Passover is about to end. We're coming to the eighth day, and Herod's ready to bring Peter before the Jews, and so he can get his you know, pat on the back and receive honor from them. Look, I'm killing Peter for you. It's about time. In fact, it says in verse 6, that night, where do we find Peter? Luke highlights four challenges for us. First, Peter is asleep. <laughs> He's sleeping. Apparently, this is not weighing on Peter all that much. Or he'd just been so exhausted from being up all night, he's finally sound asleep. I, we don't know exactly, but he's asleep. Not only that, he says he's bound with two chains. Not just one, but they're so nervous about this, they've bound him with two chains. And not only that, the third challenge is he's got a soldier sleeping on each side of him. I don't know exactly the chain set up here, but he's chained to both of these soldiers. They're sleeping there next to him. This is an impossible scenario. The fourth challenge are the guards keeping the door. Now again, we don't know if this is all 16 guards or if there's groups of four that are on a rotation or maybe groups of eight that are taking turns. But at any rate, there's two at Peter's side. There's guards at the door. This is impossible. But verse 7 breaks in with not just true light, but metaphorical light because Luke tells us, Behold! This is a surprise. See what God has done. An angel of the Lord stands by him. And I think Luke wants us to catch the humor of this scenario. God's got this, even though Peter's not fully with it here. Have you ever been startled awake? (laughs) Peter's actually still sleeping. The light hasn't even woken him up. It says the angel strikes him. This is not like an angry strike here, but maybe kicks him in the side. or I don't know exactly what happens, but somehow the angel shoves him to knock him awake. Peter, wake up. Arise quickly. And as Peter gets up, challenge number two is solved as well. The chains fall off his hands. Just done. The soldiers to his left and his right don't wake up somehow, right? I mean, it's a miracle. Verse 8, the angel has to give Peter some clear instructions here. I can remember times in my life waking up. I needed someone to tell me, okay, what do I do next? You know, the angel here, gird yourself, tie in your sandals, right? Little by little. He said to him, put on your garments and follow me. So, Peter gets the rest of his clothes back on, gets his sandals on, and the angel's like, all right, let's go, let's get out of here. I mean, this is all God's work. This is not a talented escape by Peter here, okay? God is providing for him. None of the guards notice Peter and the angel leaving. Verse 9, they go out. Peter follows him and does not know that what was done by the angel was real. I mean, he feels like he's dreaming. He feels like this is a vision, And so verse 10, they get past the first and second guard posts. They come to the iron gate that leads to the city. I mean, this is, again, this is just impossible stuff. You don't just walk through an iron gate, but it's like an automatic door at the store. It just, you know, just goes open for them and they enter the city. God's power is at work. Now, Peter hasn't fully figured that out. He's still half asleep here as all this is unfolding. The angel departs from him. And in verse 11, finally, he's kind of coming to himself. And this is the key. The interpretation of of, uh, 5 through 11 comes from Peter's mouth in verse 11. 
Now, when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Herod's hand is mentioned again because that's what this is about. This is about the work of Herod against the church, but Peter recognizes through the work of God that God's hand is greater. This is what we learn, number two, from our story today, is that God's power is greater than any resistance. God's power is greater than any resistance. This impossible scenario of Peter in the prison is nothing for God. Herod had stretched out his hand with all his might to put Peter to death, and God sends an angel, and the doors open, and Peter leaves the prison. No resistance is too much for the hand of God. The hand of our God is greater than any resistance. Friends, when things seem dark, even impossible, look to God. Bow before Him in prayer and trust His mighty power. There is no resistance that can match His mighty hand. No matter who has lifted their hand against you, God's power is greater your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, a politician, a lawyer, a king, your spouse, a parent, a child, a brother or sister in Christ, God's power is greater than it all added together. He's the one with the mighty hand and you can trust him. In fact, he's mightier than the mess that you might have made with your hand. Whatever mess you may have made with your power, with your work, broken relationships, or grievous sin that you've committed, maybe even criminal charges, our God is greater even than your sin. Nothing can stop His mighty hand or His promised forgiveness. No matter what challenges face the church, our God is greater. As we look to the future and wonder what our God has in store, no matter what we may face in the days ahead, the hand of God is greater, and we trust Him. Peter has seen that God's power is greater, but notice what happens as he shares this with the rest of the church. And once again, I think Luke intends us to smile a little bit at the way this unfolds here in the early church. Verse 12, Peter had considered this a little bit. He's figured it out. This is the hand of God who has delivered me from the hand of Herod. And so he goes to where he knows his fellow believers are praying. They're meeting in the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. John Mark, as we have grown to know him called. And through the book of Acts, he'll become a character we'll interact with a few times Mary's house had become a place where people would gather to pray. We can think of this sort of as a small group. This is not all the church of Jerusalem here, but some of the members have gathered there in Mary's house to pray for Peter. We don't know this for sure, but my speculation is that this room where they're praying is the same upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with His disciples. We don't know for sure. There they are praying. Peter comes to this familiar location where he knows they'll be praying for him, and he knocks at the door. 
a young girl. She may have even been a slave girl in the house there. Whatever her background was, it's clear she's part of the church fellowship because she's been praying for Peter and she's overjoyed that he's back. She comes to the door and verse 14, she recognizes Peter's voice. And it's possible she could see him through the gate as well. A lot of gates had openings like that. And so she's just overjoyed is the word in the original text. She's she's so excited about what's happened with Peter. She runs into the house to tell everyone else, hey, it's Peter. He's at the door. He's alive. Peter's out there still knocking, right? (laughs) So she, in verse 14, announces that Peter is standing at the gate and There's some kind of interchange while Peter's waiting outside. And they're going, oh, Rhoda, calm down. He's not there. Maybe you saw his angel. Now, that's an interesting statement they make. It could be that when they use the word angel, they're they're saying his his messenger or maybe like his, his spirit or something like that. It could literally mean angel, that they think Peter has some angel that's there representing him. But that doesn't make as much sense because why would he look like Peter and sound like Peter? So probably thinking maybe it's Peter's spirit or maybe Peter's already dead and that's what you're seeing out there or maybe in our current terms we say something like you're imagining it. (laughs) So they don't believe her. They don't believe her. And there, verse 16, is Peter still knocking. (laughs) They come and finally open the door and they see him and they're all astonished. They're amazed. Look what God has done And in their astonishment, the volume in the room begins to rise. We know that because in verse 17, Peter begins to motion to them, quiet, quiet. He's still a fugitive, right? He's out of prison, but Herod wants to put him to death. Quiet down, guys, quiet down. He begins to explain to them the meaning of all of this again in verse 17. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And we don't know where he goes. Uh, This could refer to the fact that he leaves Jerusalem altogether, right? He's a fugitive. He's on the run. He has to go somewhere else in the church. And certainly the book of Acts confirms that. We see Peter in other locations. He at least leaves this location. Maybe he goes to another group of praying believers to update them on what's happened and what's going on. Interestingly, he asked them to tell James. Now, of course, this is not the James who passed away. That was James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. This James is likely the Lord's half-brother, Jesus' brother James, who we know through the book of Acts and the New Testament later becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. In fact, this may be the very thing that leads to him becoming the pastor in Jerusalem. He had been a leader in the church, possibly, and then as Peter has to depart, he sort of hands the reins to James to become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And so the book of James in the New Testament is written by the half-brother of Jesus, this James right here. We don't know exactly how all of this is unfolding, but what's interesting about this encounter are the reactions of Rhoda and the believers. You've got Rhoda who is overjoyed. I mean, she's just excited that she saw Peter. But then the believers are astonished. They they don't believe that this could be real. And we can make all sorts of guesses here. Did they were they praying that, you know, this would 
Maybe they weren't praying that Peter would be released from prison. Who knows what they were praying? Just praying for peace for Peter and praying that, you know, I I don't know. Somehow, they weren't expecting Peter to be at the door. That's understandable. He's in kind of an impossible scenario. But I appreciate Rhoda's response of joy as opposed to their response of disbelief and surprise. What this section and the response of the other church reminds us of is number three today, God's sovereign plan is better than our plans. This is not what they were expecting. They didn't expect Peter to be at the door. Just like James' death was a change of plans, now Peter's release is a change of plans. Not what they were prepared for, not what they were expecting. And I can imagine that even Peter's departure from Jerusalem and James helping to lead the church is another change of plans. But what we see is that God is doing this behind the scenes, even though it's different than they expected. He works beyond our mistakes. How often do we handle things like Rhoda, for instance? <laughs> Leaving Peter out in the dark as we take care of some other distraction. But God's expectation is not that we handle things perfectly, it's that we trust His plan. He works beyond our faith. Even though the believers are praying for Peter and apparently did not even fully believe that God would break him out of prison, He answered their prayers beyond what they'd even asked. Think of that. God's work is not dependent on the strength of our faith, is it? He works beyond our faith, and His ways are perfect, better than our ways. But the story is not done yet. It sounds as if we could end here, but Luke brings us back to Herod, and with good purpose. We come to the final verses here, and we notice how the story ends with Herod. Verses 18 and 19, we encounter Herod and the guards kind of themselves waking up to what has happened overnight. Somehow they hadn't noticed it until morning. And they're looking around and Peter is gone. Word gets to Herod that this is what had happened. And Herod actually goes to the prison to look himself. There's a little bit of pride that we see in Herod's life there. Well, did you check under the table? Let me check, you know, kind of a thing. So he goes to the prison and he looks and he can't find Peter anywhere. And so he examines the guards. Is there some kind of bribery? Is there some kind of explanation for this? And in the end, he just decides they all will be put to death. Herod's seeking control and power and in his anger, he's just out of control here, doing whatever he can to get what he wants. And so he puts all the guards to death. And he goes down from Judea, probably Jerusalem, actually up in north terms. He goes north to Caesarea, down from the hill of Jerusalem. And he stays there. Now, while he's in Caesarea, something happens in verse 20. Herod had been very angry, beginning to notice a theme. There's more anger. This time it's with Tyre and Sidon, and something had gone awry in their agreement. They would pay some kind of tribute to him, and Herod would provide some kind of food for them. And Herod was upset, and so he'd been cutting off their food source, and they become friends with Blastus, the king's aide. Again, we don't know how that happened, maybe some kind of bribery, but they get their way in to Herod's courtroom and the opportunity to talk with him. And Herod's ready to set things straight. 
to make it clear to them who's in charge, who's really in power here. And so in verse 21, he sets a day and he addresses himself in his royal apparel and he sits on his throne and he prepares to give an oration to the people of Tyre and Sidon and whoever else wants to come and listen to Herod and his greatness. These people in need of food shout to him in verse 22, the voice of a God and not of a man. They're giving Him honor because, of course, they want Him not to be angry with them anymore, but to give them food that they need. So they offer Him worship. And that's exactly what Herod wanted. Herod receives the worship. He does not stop them. He does not correct them. Being of Jewish heritage, he knew about the one true God. He knew that he should not have received their worship for himself. He knew his actions were wrong. So in verse 23, right away, an angel of God strikes him because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten by worms and died. There it is. The end of Herod's life. A man who was working with his power and control for his own good and glory and angry when anyone would not fall in line to his power and authority. Then receives worship as if he is God and God strikes him down. Again, the historian Josephus writes about this event that the pain Herod experienced was sourced in his stomach. So it's possible that this was some kind of stomach worms that caused his death and then consumed his body. We don't know exactly how all this happened, but the point is that the Lord did it. God ended Herod's life for his grievous sin against God. But verse 24 concludes the passage and says, the word of God grew and multiplied. Talk about a contrast. We begin and it looks like the church is dying as James is put to death and Peter's in prison. And it looks like Herod is gaining ground with strength. But by the end, we see that the Lord has proved his strength. Herod is gone. And God is the one who sits on the throne. This is what the text points to. And our theme for today is this. The sovereign hand of God builds His church for His glory. And no one can stand against it. God's plan will unfold just as He intends it to. He will build His church. His hand brings it to pass. And it's for His glory. There are a number of important aspects to this that we want to think about as we look back on this text. I'm going to give you four applications from each section as we view the text through this lens. That the theme of chapter 12 is that we would see the sovereign power of God working for God's glory. And as we look back, we learn how then we can apply that. As we look back at verses 1 through 4 with the death of James, we remember the sovereign hand of God was still at work even there. So we trust Him, number one. We trust Him even through apparent setbacks. God's sovereign power was not absent in verses 1 through 4. 
God was not for a time suddenly just off his throne and not in control. The sovereign hand of God was still at work, even through the death of James for his glory. So we trust him. We trust him. No matter what difficulties or darkness we face. Number two, we look to Him in prayer because we have a sovereign God who's in control and He's working His plan for His glory. We look to Him in prayer. And we see this clearly in verses 5-11. through This is the right response of the early church. As they're not sure what's going on or what to do, they bow before Him in prayer. Number three, we rejoice in His plan. I love the response of Rhoda at seeing Peter at the gate. Not what they expected. Oh, but to just be overjoyed at what God has done. To take God's plan with joy. As we see it unfold, as we see His power, as we see Him grow His church, we rejoice. Number three. Number four. We give Him the glory. Verses 18 through 24 make it clear that this is what went wrong in Herod's life. As we see the sovereign hand of God unfolding His plan for His glory, our role is to, number four, give Him the glory. We trust Him even through apparent setbacks. We look to Him in prayer. We rejoice in His plan and we give Him the glory. So often our prayers and our labors in life are just for ourselves. And it's easy to look at Herod and look down on him and say, Oh, man, what a horrible guy who put James to death and received worship for himself. But friends, we must have tender hearts and remember that it's so easy for us to do the same things. The first clue that this kind of thing is happening in Herod's life is his anger. We see it in verses 18 and 19, his anger over Peter's absence. We see it again in verse 20, his anger over Tyre and Sidon. We know that Jesus taught that anger is murder in the heart, isn't it? And we must admit, a lot of us would would look at a text like this and say, Yes, I want to live for God's glory and everything's about Him and for His glory, but... How many of us, like Herod, have anger in our hearts? Resistance to what God is doing. Discontent with God's sovereign rule, and so we push back, wanting to control things ourselves. Resisting Him and His work. Anger and pride run rampant in our hearts. Sometimes we justify ourselves claiming that this is righteous anger. I'm just angry that they're not doing what God has told them to do, right? Righteous anger. Here's some questions you could ask maybe about anger in your own life to consider whether this is truly righteous anger or is this just me pushing back on what God's seeking to do? Me not bowing to His sovereign will. Does this anger cause me to turn to God in faith or away from God in frustration? Is this anger an outburst or is this based on the Word of God and thoughtful and careful and calculated? Even 
The anger we see in the Lord Jesus Christ as he cleanses the temple was not an outburst. He was obeying the Father's plan and took the time to form the whip that he would use to chase them out of God's holy place. Does this anger last beyond sundown? Have I held on to it for more than 24 hours? God's anger is not that way. His anger is but for a moment. Is it solved by submission to me or submission to God? Am I angry because people are not doing what I say and what I want? Sometimes we tell ourselves, well, I just want them to obey God. James reminds us, the James we see in our text here, that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Maybe. (laughs) But friends, so many times our anger is rooted in the very same thing we see in Herod. I've arranged my life for my glory. And when things don't go the way I wanted them to, when people aren't submitting to my control or my rule or my instructions, I get all up in arms and there's murder in my heart. And the problem is not their actions. The problem is that I'm not submitting to a sovereign God who works all things for His glory. Everything is for His glory. And so the right response, the way we fix our anger is we bow our wills to the God who reigns over everything. And we say, I'm done. I'm done fighting. Whatever you want. I hate the anger in my heart and I just want to submit to you. 1 Peter 5, 5-6 through 6 makes this clear for us. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Why? Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may lift you up. So the solution to our pride and self-glorying is to just bow before the Lord and say, You are the sovereign ruler. You are working your plan for your glory. So I will trust you. I will bow before you in prayer. I will rejoice in your plan. And I will continue to give you the glory for all that happens in my life and in my actions. Submitting to the Father's plan means sometimes we have to be okay when things don't go the way we want them to. There are real hard things that a sovereign God may allow. In this text, the same sovereign God working for His glory allowed James to die and rescued Peter from prison. Was it their worthiness that made the difference? Was it their obedience? No. It's the sovereign plan of God. And both were for God's glory. Both James and Peter lived a successful life in those moments, just submitting to the plan of their father and allowing their lives to be given for God's glory. This is what everything works towards. And so we trust him and submit and praise him. And in fact, there's great joy in this because the glory of God becomes the great purpose behind everything in our lives. Suddenly, our suffering has meaning. 
Suddenly the problems we face can be used for the greatest good, the glory of God, as we look to Him and His sovereign hand in our lives. Friends, I don't know what you face today, but lift your eyes to the throne of your Father in heaven who loves you and is unfolding His plan for His glory and your good. We know this because He gave His Son to die for your sins and conquer our sin and death so that we can have life in Him and live for His glory. Would you trust in Him today? Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You that You are the Sovereign One and not us. We confess we, we like to look like we're living for Your glory, but so often there's a current of anger running through our hearts. And so we bow before You now and we submit our wills to You. You are our Sovereign Lord. You fulfill Your promises. You are keeping Your promise to this church. And we trust You. We bow before You in worship. We ask for Your help to follow Your plan that everything we do and say might lead to the glory of Your name. I pray for anyone here today that may be resisting Your sovereign rule in their lives. May they submit to You even now. Maybe it would be someone who has been resisting Your salvation in Jesus Christ and even today would trust in Him alone for salvation. Maybe there's someone here who's been holding on to anger and bitterness, working for their own self-glory. Father, soften their heart even now to bow before You as Sovereign Lord. We thank You and we praise You for what You're doing in Your church for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.